you everyone for joining us today on As Per Usual. Today we have another great panel of guests, as per usual. So in our study, we heard from participants from that traditional academic culture is not designed to support patient engagement, let alone effective patient engagement. This is especially true for those academic researchers who are early in their career and do not have tenure. So how can we make progress in patient engagement when we're swimming against such a massive current? Well, that's a big question, Bryn. According to our study findings, it's all about achieving change in the values and structures that underlie academic culture. Specifically, we need to have an evolution to a state in which academic culture respects and values the contributions and experiences of every research partner, including those with lived and living experience. It also includes changes in academic career metrics, which basically means how researchers are evaluated to better support and acknowledge the time needed to meaningfully engage patient partners. It also means recognizing that there is a wonderful world beyond manuscript publications that includes alternate knowledge translation products that are oftentimes of greater interest to patient partners and more accessible to the public. Finally, there's also a need for policies that support and encourage the active participation of patient partners in graduate student committees, tenure and promotion reviews, capacity building, knowledge mobilization, and peer review processes. Basically, the entire academic enterprise, so as to help facilitate and maintain the shift in values and metrics of academic culture. All right, so clearly a lot of changes need to occur in terms of personal and collective values and the academic structures in which we function. So we're very lucky to have with us today Dr. Christine Chambers, an internationally recognized patient-oriented pain researcher, as well as Isabel Jordan, an individual with a wealth of experience personally partnering in research projects and helping researchers and organizations to partner with patients in a safe, relational way. Welcome. Thanks so much for joining us today. We are so excited for this. Could you please start us off by introducing yourselves some more to the listeners? Why don't you take that one first, Christine? Okay. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Christine Chambers. I'm a psychologist and a professor at Dalhousie University. I hold a Canada Research Chair in Children's Pain. Um, and I'm someone who kind of uh, has, I guess, taken on a focus in patient-oriented research more over the last decade of my career. So for many years, I was a more traditional researcher um, and then kind of had an evolution into patient-oriented research. So really happy to be here and, and have a chance to talk about this important topic today. Isabel, over to you. Christine. Uh, so I'm Isabel Jordan, and I'm a person, as you said, with a lot of uh, a lot of experiences and expertise from the point of view of a parent and as a patient, I'm disabled. Uh, both my two young adults' uh, children are, are disabled and have chronic pain, and one of them is very medically complex. So my whole life, but especially the past 20 years or so, have been very focused on uh, the healthcare system, on research because of the rarity of my oldest um, condition, and I took that, had the opportunity to take that into uh, partnering for um, research in areas that were relevant to us. Some experiences were great, uh, and some experiences really were not, uh, depending on, actually earlier on, mostly they weren't. Uh, so I've been doing this kind of stuff for about 15 years, and then more recently, I've taken that experience and working with other patient partners to uh, to help researchers uh, and organizations know how to do the work better, like what are the concrete steps to take, and not just from my point of view, but from the point of view of um, including other patient partners in that. Why don't we launch into our first question? Tell me, Isabel and or Christine, why do you think it's important that people are starting to engage in dialogue about how current academic culture needs to shift to better support meaningful patient engagement? So that is a huge question, 
that I will try to give a not so huge answer to. Um, and I, th I think a good way to center it is around, you know, where we are in patient partnership in terms of what's been happening, what we know might be best practice given what we know now, and whether um, people can actually move towards best practice. And if you look how patient partnership has traditionally been done and often still is done is that the the folks working uh, uh, that have lived expertise in these areas often look like me. They're middle-aged, they're women, they're white. Uh, and, uh, you know, not to say that we don't have things to add, but we generally don't represent uh, the folks that might have um, more barriers to participating, that have more barriers to healthcare, more barriers to research, and there's a recognition that we need to do better on that uh, and lots of conversation around it. Uh, but I think that those conversations are only just beginning to kind of creep out into, into how we do things. And I really firmly believe that at this point versus 15 years ago when I started doing this kind of stuff, we know that doing this work with an EDI lens, with safety, trauma-informed, is what's going to get us uh, the best kind of uh, information or partnership into research projects. So we need to do it that way or learn how to do it that way. Otherwise, the outputs aren't as good. That's a, those are great points, Isabel. And I think, you know, for me, I think it's really timely that you're having this conversation around how do we sort of address these um systems issues that are kind of baked into academia, right? And while we've made a lot of progress, um, you know, over the last decade in, you know, really um, raising awareness about the value and importance of patient-oriented research, and I think, you know, Isabel's just been a tremendous leader in the how, right? Like, it's one thing to say it and to want to do it, but the actual kind of how do you do it and, you know, the specificity of some of the issues that, you know, you get into around compensation, attribution of authorship, like, there's been incredible progress there. But, you know, for the most part, academia kind of has remained with its current metrics, as you mentioned before, there's still, a, you know, a big emphasis in the promotion and tenure process in all the reporting that faculty members have to do for their CVs, for their resumes, for their annual reports to the department on the number of publications that you have, the number of presentations that you've given, um, how many times your papers have been cited, what your H index is, what the impact factors of the journals are that you publish in. There is a whole movement more broadly internationally to get away from those types of traditional metrics. Um, you know, there's the, the um, Declaration on Research Assessment, DORA, um, that's really trying to kind of pull people away and to encourage um, people evaluating academics and the currency in academia to shift, but it hasn't moved that far. I mean, it's great that we're talking about it, um, but, you know, when I have to fill out my reports, uh, that's the kind of stuff that I have to report on. And I would say that there is, in general, a lack of appreciation and understanding for how much work and how much time and how much resource um, and it takes to do this well. Um, and, you know, that kind of recognition and that kind of um, acknowledgement, I mean, it's the right thing to do. And I think people who, you know, um, end up getting into this work, I mean, it's hard. Like, I'm not going to, you know, it's hard, but it's incredibly intrinsically rewarding because you realize that this is the way that you can have impact, that if you are motivated to truly make a difference in the world, like in my case, truly make a difference for children in pain, publishing in journals is one thing, but actually working with and in partnership with others, including patients is so important. So I think we've made a lot of progress, but I think there are still a lot of institutional and systemic barriers in academia. Yes, absolutely. and. It's great that you brought up uh, Dora. Um, that was something on the tip of my tongue as you as you both and Christine were speaking as to some of the slow, I guess, positive indications that we're seeing moving forward. You know, and I am curious myself to see how that's going to be integrated into actual, you know, in terms of tenure applications or review annual reviews of research work at, from an academic lens. How how is this going to be built in and you know, you know, actually start to mean something 
and have more weight and give credit to what you were saying, Christine, that it, it does take time, very valuable, um, worthwhile time, but it takes time. And you're not, we're not at this point seeing that output. We're not seeing it on the other side. And I guess, you know, maybe it's, you know, it, we're seeing the right indications, but we're, what does a patient engagement positive academic environment look like in, in your eyes? Uh, either one, I mean, I, I, I think, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just saying, I think that's a really interesting question because patient positive, like environment for whom? Because I think we need to look at the environment has to be uh, appropriate for the patient partners, but also for the researchers and the trainees in terms of how we can all work together in in a good way. Um, and there's kind of diff not different answers for each ones, but different ways of looking at it from the different point of views and kind of all those things need to be all those groups uh, need to have their needs addressed in order to work well together and I don't think that's generally happening and then there has to be institutional support for that which is a we'll get into that later uh, <laughs> what, what do you think Christine yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. You know, positive for who? Like, who Who are we talking about here? I mean, I think broadly, the words that popped into my mind when I think about what a positive, you know, uh, engagement uh, or patient engagement positive environment would be for me in academia is one in which, the, you know, it's understood um, and that it's valued and that it's also supported. So those are kind of the three words that 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 jumped in for me. I would just say, you know, in the ecosystems that I can have control over, you know, and I think about Isabel's role just in my research lab, and Isabel and I collaborate in a lot of different ways and a, a lot of different projects, but she's a part-time, you know, strategic lead for, for patient engagement within my research lab. And I think the word for me that really, and, you know, I, for many years, I didn't have somebody in this position, um, and Isabel's been in the role for a couple of years now, and what I think really makes it patient engagement positive for the trainees in my lab is that Isabel is integrated. Um, and so Isabel's on the Teams chats and, you know, she's at the lab meetings. And so, you know, her questions that come from a patient partner lens are integrated and embedded into the environment that the trainees are having. They are comfortable going to her with questions because they know, they know her. She's part of the team. And so I think that that integrated component, um, especially for trainees. And I think the, you know, influencing the system as early as we can through, um, you know, giving trainees experiences that are positive around patient engagement is, is really important. Yeah, you know, one thing, as Christine knows that I've been thinking and talking a lot about lately is around language and what creates and kind of what creates a place where the, the patient partner in the team uh, on a research project uh, is actually valued. And I think shifting language to understand that could help people understand. One of the things that really sticks out to me is we talk about patient experience and we talk about uh, researcher expertise or clinician expertise. And language like that, I think, automatically devalues us as patient partners. So there's this shift that has to happen. And not everybody is going to be capable of it. Where we as patient partners, when we're brought into a, a team, it's understand, understood that we have expertise that comes from experience. Other team members have expertise that comes from a variety of academic backgrounds. But it's all expertise. You know, it's not opinion, viewpoint, you know, voice, my own personal. Um, it's it's if we're really partnering with patients, then we value that expertise and kind of everything falls from there. The institution has to uh, put, implement changes to make that happen to, so that people can actually provide their expertise. And then, you know, how we all work together, um, working towards that. 
That's a very interesting point and builds off of something that I've been thinking about as well is to also start to consider patient partners as part of the interdisciplinary research team. So exactly. it's not just saying I have an interdisciplinary research team, oh, and I have some patient partners. And then I think once we start thinking about that as well, the natural next step also is these patient partners bring their lived expertise, such as other people bring expertise of like stats or intervention design. So I totally agree with you on that one. And then so maybe we could build off of that kind of point about thinking about different types of supports. And I know that both of you have also mentioned or kind of touched upon institutional supports. Um, but what personal or institutional supports do you think are necessary in order to really start shifting that academic climate? So looking first within research teams and what individuals could maybe do, um, and then moving outwards towards the system. You want to take that first, Christine? I've got a got a whole bunch on that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll jump in and then throw to you. So, um, I mean, in terms of supports and the sort of circles of the system that we're in, uh, I mean, I think you have to have the funding to be able to, you know, um, engage and, and compensate people properly for their time. So funding is always tough. You have to have the training on, you know, how to do this uh, properly. Um, I think also, you know, from a, a broader systems level, Again, people have to appreciate that this is important. And, you know, one of the things that I've seen Dalhousie University do, which I was really grateful for, was they created award, impact awards uh, for their faculty. Um, and, you know, these were, awards were specifically, you know, developed to not just reward publication output, but you had to actually show that what you were doing is having some sort of real world, you know, uh, impact on practice or impact on policy. And I think those types of things send a very strong message that your institution supports and values um, the kind of work that you're doing. Um, I often say like in patient engagement, patient partnership, you know, it, it doesn't really align with, again, all the metrics that we have. And in our world, you know, if you can't measure it, you can't count it. And impact and you know working in, in partnership with patients is something you feel um so you know you when you know that your work's having an impact when people approach you on the street and say hey i use this with my kids during needles and it made a huge difference like you can feel it and you know that that you can't really measure the same way so i think awards opportunities to um, acknowledge people and provide supports for, for impact, um, you know, it, it really does make a difference. You, you know, you have to acknowledge it within the system. So everybody who knows me knows that at some point I'm going to talk about compensation because it is so key and so important. But I think the important thing kind of in this context to talk about it is that most institutions, I'm going to say all institutions, all um, academic institutions don't recognize that patient partners are in our own kind of category and that some rules have to be different from us in terms of, of, of compensation and how you compensate people. Those, those financial policies haven't caught up to what we know is best practice in terms of compensating people in different ways. You know, if they can't accept cash, maybe they could have a course, um, you know, these alternatives that work for people, um, you know, in every patient partnership, uh, you know, finance form I've ever filled out with like a variety of different universities, they're all vendor services forms. And we are not that, you know, there's, um, you know, on the one hand, we are uh, legitimate research partners. But on the other hand, there's an understanding that we are legitimate research partners that have barriers to our participation, um, especially those who haven't been doing it as often or who come from otherwise uh, equity-seeking communities. So, I, you know, I honestly, and it makes it difficult for the researchers as well and for the labs to be able to put in best practice when the institutions 
don't know that they have to update some of those policies, um, not just around compensation, around other things as well, like to really have an understanding that this has to be, this is key for research, we have to include it, so it has to be supported. And I don't think we're there yet. Um, I see this too in terms of, I do some work on uh, anti-ableism in the, in the academic world, and very much goes along the same thing where that kind of institutional support and understanding that not everybody goes under the same umbrella and, and that's okay and you have to make allowances or, or make different kinds of practices for that. And then the one other thing that I would say is it's great to give awards to folks, hooray, um, but funding people appropriately for patient partnership doesn't happen. So first of all, not enough funds are in it. Like there should be a dedicated, if I'm going to have a patient partner, then over and above the cost of what it takes to do this research, there needs to be cost for doing a well-resourced patient partnership. Um, and then when, when uh, CIHR is reviewing and they want patient partnership to be part of that review, uh, they don't have enough um, content area experts to contribute to that review. And by that, I mean patient partners that understand patient partnership. Um, not that that can't be taught, not that it can't be a module um, that you go through, but we really need people that understand partnership and understand equity to know whether a project has what it needs to, to include patient partners. And can I jump back in here? Because I, you know, this is Isabel and I. We could have this conversation with ourselves, I think. But um, and it's been great because we haven't had these conversations in a while, Isabel. We're we're so busy doing. We don't get to have the big picture conversations. So this is fun for us. Um, but I will say that, like, I've come to really appreciate all what I call the hidden costs, the hidden financial costs of doing. A patient partnership. So it's not just the compensation of the patient partner, but just to give you an, ex an idea of the, an exciting poster that Isabel and my lab led last year was all about, I can't remember the title, but in essence, it was navigating institutional barriers to implementing patient partner compensation because all of this amazing compensation work has been done, but then when it actually comes to navigating the systems, the forms, as Isabel described, like it was a whole project, right? And, you know, when we have a challenge, you know, related to, you know, something to do with patient partnership, like it can take a week of staff time to follow up with the organization, troubleshoot these things. Like I know why a lot of people give up because, you know, you don't have, you know, the kind of kind of budget necessarily to 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 do all that administrative aspect. So, you know, I have a role at CIHR now, and it's interesting now that I bring a funder lens to this as well as a researcher lens. I mean, part of the problem is there's just not enough money to go around. Um, and uh, but I think that we don't acknowledge all of the administrative costs as well that the researcher tends to carry rather than the institution. But, you know, there's, there can be a lot of institutional inertia on these types of issues as well. Yeah, and, and not just administrative um, resourcing, but resourcing around supporting the people doing the partnership in terms of the lab and supporting the patient partners, creating an environment for partnership that lets you have that relational approach, which I think is so key. And, and that can mean like being able to give people a gift card to skip the dishes. So when you're having a group meeting, you know, where you, you can eat together, um, even if we're, we're virtual, but the, not necessarily, you know, things like that, that can help create that environment of, of welcome. That, that all has costs in terms of time and in terms of, um, of money output just for things. Yeah. And it, it, they're hard to, and that doesn't mean it's not the right thing to do, but they're, that they're hard to put it you like on the balance sheet, or they're looking how do I quantify this in terms of time and put this in picture, you know? And yeah, and I guess I was wondering, listening to, you know, when you're talking about some of the institutional barriers, of, you know, that you've been going through and these hidden administrative challenges, what have you found? Either one of you, like that's worked in the past as you've worked through your your projects together that have helped to dismantle some of those barriers or get around some of those barriers, even though the barriers are still there, because it is a bigger question and a bigger um, sort of a bigger fight. Uh, I'm, I'm just curious to see what, I'm um, always looking for practical 
uh, tip. So. Can I jump in, Christine? Um, you know, I've had experience myself with uh, five or six different universities uh, in terms of being a patient partner with them, and then also hearing from colleagues who are also patient partners. And too often, there is there aren't the resources or the understanding um, within that research project or the PI that certain things are barriers to patient partners, that methods of compensation, how you connect in meetings. Like there's, a, you know, a slew of things that, that make um, best practices. And often those patient partners are kind of thrown to the wolves in terms of having to sort out like invoicing or how often do I get paid or how much do I get paid or what's going on with the, with the research project. I only get called in once in a while for meetings and I know there's other things happening. And where I've seen it done well, and I've certainly seen it done well some places, it's not the institution making it easier. It's the the PI, the lab, the researcher taking it on themselves, which I don't think they should have to because it's so, you know, not funded for that to get around the systems. Christine, I think about, you know, the comp various compensation resources that we have uh, in your lab and also at SCIP. I mean, they represent a huge amount of time to create them and they're created so that patient partners know that they're welcome, don't have to do administrative work that they might be difficult for them and don't get traumatized uh, by doing the work uh, that we do. Uh, so yeah, where I've seen, I'm curious to hear if Christine knows of more, but every time I've seen it, it's been, it's been on the back of, of somebody who really cares about this work and can find resources to do it or, or do it on their own time, which isn't right. Yeah, and I would say that, um, you know, it does, it does, it, it is a lot of work and, you know, uh, not everybody, and, and I think there's a lot of reinventing the wheel, which is why last year I was like, you all should present this at a conference because, you know, I think that's the piece around it. And Isabel is, is wonderful. She's so active on social media and contributes to articles and everything. But I think that a lot of this, um, like, knowledge and experience sits within teams and is not shared across teams and so I think opportunities and I think it's why you know your podcast is so great right because you're trying to like spread the word around um, you know how you navigated this and so we are very like at skip we have our our compensation strategy like you know on our website anyone can access it anyone who reaches out we're happy to share like you know, what our sort of navigational approach is, recognizing that every institution is different and there are different barriers in different places. But yeah, I think um, just acknowledging that, that that it is a lot of work, um, but that people should reach out and, and share. And I think, you know, another area that Isabel's done incredible work over at SCIP is trying to improve the diversity of the types of patient partners. Um, we, we, you know, engage with and, um, you know, that is really hard to do. And, uh, you know, so all of that kind of sits with Isabel, right, and sits with core members of the SKIP team who've worked with her, but it's like, how do we scale and spread some of these things? And, you know, as SKIP is uh, entering a transition period, you know, we're entering our final year of Networks of Centers of Excellence funding, you know, we've really been talking about, like, what is our legacy in particular areas? And, you know, this patient partnership piece, I think we've learned a ton. We've made tons of mistakes. We've tried lots of things that have been, that have worked, haven't worked, but how do we, how do we share this? I mean, that's one thing we're really good at in academia. We know how to share the results of research, right? Like we know how to give talks, present posters, share, you know, papers, but this kind of knowledge um, really kind of, we, we don't share it the same way. We might talk about it. We might complain about it, um, but there aren't the same kind of dissemination mechanisms to share that kind of knowledge. Interesting, too, because I think of the work that I've done with CIHR and the Institute of Genetics, that there's a role, that role for funders to say these are the standards. There's that tricky relationship between the funders and the academic institutions but I think there's a way that they can learn from each other 
to kind of move this forward from an institutional point of view. Um, and it's it's just really necessary. What you were saying, Christine, about working with an EDI lens. You know, I'm a middle-aged white lady. Uh, I am disabled, so yay, equity points, I guess. Um, <laughs> but the work is hard. The better you do it, the harder the work and the more resourced it is. And it's so tricky because, I mean, honestly, in my opinion, I think that if you're not doing patient partnership um, with an EDI lens and really looking at the populations you're uh, talking about in your research and how that's reflected in your patient partners, you're not doing good patient partnership. But to really effectively um, work with folks who are equity have been equity denied requires more work in setup, creating safety, reaching out to people that haven't um, been reached out to before, creating relationships that uh, of trust that they feel they know, I hate the word feel in this work, by the way, that they know that they're being um, uh, valued, integrated, respected in the work. I love it. I work with psychologists. I'm like, no feeling words. <laughs> You work with psychologists. There's one over here running the <laughs> podcast. You're just surrounded by them. <laughs> so I have a follow-up question, but before I do, could we take a little sidestep for those of our listeners who don't actually visit our Substack? And could you um, briefly explain to them what Skip is in case they want to Google without actually visiting our website to our resources section to find the answer? Sure. So SKIP stands for Solutions for Kids in Pain, um, and it is a national knowledge mobilization network um, that links uh, partners, patients, researchers, a variety of organizations together to help collaborate and coordinate to improve children's pain management. So we've been funded by the Networks and Centers of Excellence for the last five years, um, and we'll be transitioning um, into a new entity as an official Dehazi Research Center in April. Um, so that is, Skip was actually kind of a, I guess, a, a grew from uh, more of a grassroots project that uh, I was funded to lead from CIHR. Um, where Isabel and I got to know each other. And actually, Isabel and I met over Twitter. I'm on the East Coast. She's on the West Coast. We collided on Twitter. Um, and uh, she started asking me really good questions uh, in a very uh, kind but um, assertive way, as she is so good at. Uh, and uh, I've started learning a lot from her. So uh, she joined a parent panel for a project I was running called It Doesn't Have to Hurt, in which we were... Um, you know, uh, using social media and digital media and partners to reach parents with information about children's pain. So yeah, so that it really the focus of SKIP is, um, it's a patients included organization in that patients are actively integrated in all aspects of what we do. So Isabel is a core part of our administrative team. We have a, a variety of patient partners on our board. And then we also have a very active patient caregiver advisor advisory committee um, and all of these uh, levels of people are sort of engaged in helping to mobilize research results. Um, so I don't know, Isabel, if you want to say anything about SKIP, that was my standard spiel, but you may have more to add. It's a good standard spiel, but what I would say to the patient partners out there is that a lot of people, a lot of organizations say that, uh, but SKIP really walks the walk in terms of uh, having uh, patient partners, people with lived expertise, uh, throughout the organization from like governance to to advisory groups and actually listens and uh, understands that we have expertise that others don't uh, and and acts accordingly. Uh, that's hard to find. And that's so inspiring to hear as well, because like you said, Isabel, many more and more people are engaging patients, but to see it done at such a systems level and so meaningfully is really inspiring. And uh, hopefully people check it out to themselves so that they can even model even if some of the aspects that are present within their own research group. 
So I have a question that builds off of what you've been talking about and also something that I've been thinking about myself. So this past semester, I co-developed a graduate level course. And one of the special things about it was that it was focused on approaches to patient engagement in research, which is awesome. But something we did was we actively um, included six patient partners in helping us co-develop the course, but as well as helping deliver it. And the way that they did that was that students had their own um, sessions every three sessions where they'd meet with patient partners, they discuss the topic that are um, that the course was focused on at that time. And then the patient partners also provided feedback on an engagement protocol that the students designed as well as their assignments. And something that we heard from the students was just how great it was not only to get to read about engagement, but actually see firsthand the benefits of engaging with patient partners. So it's that experiential learning. And then Isabel, now with what you've brought up up and you have as well, Christine, about having you as the patient liaison, Isabel, with your lived expertise. And I've been talking to people about more and more about how they should have engagement liaisons. But through the conversation that we're having today and other ones we've had at our podcasts as well, I'm starting to think that I think that needs to go one further. And it's not just having a patient engagement liaison, but having a patient partner that is the liaison that's well supported in their role and how that, like you had said, Isabel, then students in the lab will get to engage with them, other researchers in that research team as well. And then just letting that position be truly a leadership position, I think has a lot of benefits as well. So I was wondering what your reflections are on that. Do you think, I know for me, it's a big aha, but do you think it actually is an aha? I think it's a huge aha. And this is no disrespect to folks who are doing that kind of job that don't have lived expertise, haven't been patient partners, haven't been on that end of the power structure, haven't been harmed by it, haven't seen friends harmed by it, is that it's really, it makes, it's hard for them to really know what some of the pitfalls are or what some of the enablers are. It's kind of not fair. Um, and one thing that I I think about, it's, you know, there are like experts in patient partnership that do a great job and they have no uh, lived experience, uh, but it, there's a different value to having a patient partner who also has enough level of experience in partnership that they can provide that perspective and understanding and know to bring in other people. It, it's to me, it's like it's a completely different job, really, um, and one that has such a huge value. Um, and then it also signals. I really believe a lot in language um, and how it influences culture and culture influencing language. I also believe that there are signals that folks who want to do this work well can give by how they do it to others. Um, they get signal to others about respecting patient partner expertise on teams. Part of that is having a position like mine, or you know, I can think of Don Richards or Jillian Banfield at the Institute of Genetics, that you know we have this role, so it, it is implicitly saying patient partners have expertise. Um, you know, using the word expertise instead of experience signals that it's you know you're on an equal level. I always say patient partnership, not patient engagement, because partnership implies being a team member. Engagement kind of implies doing a favor. Um, and it's not that. Uh, so yeah, that's, I think it's really important. And I'm hoping there will be more roles like that. I'm just going to jump in and say, as Isabel was talking, I was thinking a lot about how we use the language of incentives, right? But we haven't used the language um, of like power and privilege within academia, right? And and as Isabel was talking, I was really reflecting a lot on how, you know, academics are rewarded and and sort of build that power and privilege in within their universities, but also within their research areas, and how you know you have to. And again, this is not incentivized in any sort of 
you know, uh, uh, tangible way, but it's like, you have to be willing to give up some of your space. I mean, this has to do around promoting equity and inclusion in other areas. And, you know, I think for me, I've kind of gotten to the point where I just, when someone asks me, you know, to be on a podcast about patient, you know, engagement, I'm like, well, I could do that, but I, I would do that. I would want to do that in partnership with a patient partner. Um, and, you know, it's, it's more work and it's harder. And I, I think one of the hardest, but the best talks that I ever was a part of was a plenary that Isabel and I were asked to deliver together at a uh, conference called Collaborating Across Borders. And Isabel and I both have our own talks, right? And it's way easier just to give your own talk. And Isabel and I didn't want to just do that. We didn't want to like do, I'll give my talk, you'll give your talk, we'll conclude. We decided to like interweave our key messages together. And it was uh, very effective, but it took a lot of work. But a lot of academics don't want to share space. Um, you know, they want, because again, you know, the way they're incentivized is to build their own program and to, you know, so I think we need to talk about that as part of changing the incentives as well, that it's not so much what you do. And I mean, I've had an amazing career and I'm very grateful for it, but also what you give up or what you share to be able to create space for other voices and other conversations to be had. And I think I've just been so lucky to get to know Isabel um, that we're very different in a lot of ways, but we also have a lot of very similar personality characteristics that allow us to feel comfortable with each other, right? Uh, comfortable enough that Isabel will call me out or I'll tell her I'm struggling with something. Like it's, a, it's an honesty and a trust um, that I think has allowed us to you know, grow our work in, in different ways and learn from each other. I, I think that says a lot, Christine, when you say it's an honesty and a trust, because those are the kind of the two principles patient partnership has to be built on um, to make it effective, to make it safe. Something else that I thought of while you were talking about power imbalances is two things. One is that, you know, a lot of really wonderful people that are kind and nice have difficulty recognizing that they have power, um, that there's a differential, and that's not helpful. Um, it's really important to know when we have uh, power in a relationship, so, because it can only, I mean, it can't be equalized. It is what it is, but it can be recognized, and you can work to um, to overcome those or work together or build that trust. Like, I think recognizing it is a huge part of building trust. And I think something else that goes along with that, that some researchers don't recognize and some patient partners also don't recognize is one of the things that can be really hard if those power differentials aren't kind of made explicit is that I know for me, and I'm not going to talk for anybody else, but, you know, I'm sure for other people as well, a lot of my expertise come from negative experiences in healthcare. Uh, with clinicians who also represent, you know, health researchers are often clinicians or for the regular, most patient partners, kind of equal kind of thing, right? And so we go into these spaces with a lot of trauma baggage around what you can say to uh, the researchers and the PIs about, uh, you know, like a deep kind of fear about looking stupid, because if you do that in front of a doctor that you're trying to get to do something to help you, then you don't get that help. And understanding that, I mean, that's something that like I, after all this time, I still feel. Um, and I don't know what would make me stop feeling that. Um, because, you know, often as disabled people, you know, we keep experiencing harm uh, in the healthcare system. So I, I think it's really important to just really put all that stuff on the table. Like jumping, you know, from the word incentive to, I mean, that's, it, that is what it is, it's a power imbalance. It's the power structure inherent in the system that continues to perpetuate, you know, generationally new, new researchers. And so it keeps getting, um, you know, the, the same thing keeps happening over and over. And it, you know, slowly we do have individuals who are, you know, able to, you know, like you said, trade, trade that and make that space. And, you know, but it's, it's not as quick in my eyes as I'd like it to see it. And I guess as we look to, you know, bringing things, you know, to a, to 
to a close for the episode, I was wondering, normally we like to ask folks, you know, what is the one thing, you know, can you name a thing, a practical thing moving forward that we can do with regards to the topic of discussion, that one thing we can start doing tomorrow to make a difference? And I guess I want to couch that a little bit in, what can we do to make it to change that for the next generation of researchers. I think oftentimes when we have these conversations about incentives and changing academia to, and when I say academia, I do mean both medical and graduate education, how, how can we change it for the next generation so that they don't feel, because I, I feel like they have to play the game because they, they also want to, you know, they want their, their degree. Maybe they'll think once they get, oh, then I'll, then I'll do something different, but that's hard to break so be quiet and I guess you know what are your thoughts on the humanity look ahead and try to you know give folks some marching orders I guess for move forward so I'll let you take that one first Christine <laughs> yeah I mean I think for me one of the most effective strategies is um, giving people that kind of experiential piece as early as possible in their career. I mean, I think we still need to work to overthrow the larger power structures and promotion criteria and all that stuff. So don't get me wrong, like we still need to tackle that and I do in the ways that I have influence and can, but uh, the most effective way I think to, to have a path forward is exposing as many trainees to this as possible, not just in the labs of people like me who you know really believe in this, but also, I mean, I'm part of a training program called the North American Pain School, and we have, you know, 30 trainees from around the world, basic science, clinical science, and, you know, we always have two patient partners at the event, and, you know, it's the basic science trainees often who are the most blown away by the power of patient conversations at lunch, for example, um, and, you know, I really feel like if we, we had to make one choice about where to invest a lot of effort and energy, it would be in those conversations and those opportunities to really get to know each other and, and develop that partnered oriented mindset as early as possible in people's careers. Absolutely that, Christine. And, you know, from a patient partner point of view, I think there's a huge role to play for, again, people like me, people who hold privilege as patient partners to make room for others to step aside when there'd be somebody who'd be more appropriate for that opportunity to, you know, even if we have the privilege to not partner with best practices, because we can, um, we can kind of cushion our own personal harm to not do that, to make sure that we're holding folks to a way of doing this that includes, um, I can't say all of us because that's way too optimistic for me, but includes more of us. Like I, I really do think there has to be some growth and recognition within the patient partner community uh, about that as well. Thank you both. This has been such an enlightening conversation. And I wonder before um, Bryn wraps up for us, Isabel, if maybe one of my favorite things that I say about patient engagement is that I don't have to have all of the answers. I don't even have to have many of the answers or ideas because it's truly collaborative if you do it properly. So to your point about how perhaps academic researchers could help create a space where people feel more okay sharing and as though they're on the equal playing field, do you think an approach could be to be vulnerable so more vulnerable sometimes I feel and as I get on with my career I feel it less and less like you have to look like you have to know the answers like you have to look like you know everything that's going on but to bring that vulnerability as well so you're asking people to share their lived expertise these things that have happened and if you never show any vulnerability 
you never show any openness and it could be something as little as oh man i had a bad day today or i feel very nervous for this meeting or like ah i don't really know how to frame that research question do you think those are practical little things that people could also start to do to show that we're all humans and we're here trying to frame and figure out a problem together so none of us have all the answers we just hopefully all have good intentions so i'm if you'll allow me i'm going to reframe that just a little bit first of all yeah absolutely agree with you this work is relational has to be relational i mean life is like that i think you know i'm in projects completely not related to this kind of work if i don't have relationship with the other people in the projects in terms of actually caring about them or what happens to them or knowing a little bit about them it's not very satisfying um, as a patient partner going into something, if you know that the person in charge um, also has doubts, also wants to learn. I mean, for me, I, the best learning is learn together and, and how to do how to do the work. Um, it, it can make a really big def difference. And along with that, again, I'm going to talk about feelings is when including patient partners, when coming up with a patient partnership plan, when having meetings, I think it's really important for folks in charge to think, do I want this person to feel included or do I want them to be included? And what does that look like? Because that's uh, a tangible way. When I am included, I feel included. People can make me feel included and then completely ignore me later after it's all done. Uh, and it happens more often than I'd like. Uh, not so much anymore, because I mean. Um, but uh, I think it's really important to think about, you know, you don't want other research partners to feel included. You want them to be included. And and if we keep that in our mind, I also often say respect comes before empathy. And empathy requires that you conceive from somebody's point of view. And we don't need that. I mean, it's nice when you know people well and you have that empathy. What we need first is respect for our knowledge. Uh, you don't have to see how we see things, see things, but if you say, I don't know this and you do, that shows respect. And then all those good feelings, I think, come from after that. It's an order of operations thing. Like bed maths in the math. I think that's a perfect place to uh <clears throat> to wrap things up in terms of you know it, you know across all the episodes we've had so far it it never fails to surprise me and i i like to think it's not the psychologist in me but that it does come back to relationships at the end of the day so you know i think that if there is one common thread throughout what Anna and i are both learning through these episodes it's certainly i think reinforcing that message that at the end of the day you have to have that that relationship and, and look at it. It's relationship-centered, not necessarily patient-centered. So on behalf of Anne and I, I really want to thank both of you, uh, Isabel and Christine, for joining us today, um, for sharing your expertise with us. And I'm really looking forward to listening again to the conversation. So for those um, listening in, you can, uh, of course, you're on Spotify or Apple. If you uh, you can read the transcript and all the wonderful resources that they've both kindly shared with us uh, on our Substack, and also on YouTube, we have a video of this conversation with closed captioning. So whichever way you like to take in your your media, we have a few options for you. Um, so again, thank you very much for joining us today, and let's all take these lessons and move forward and make patient engagement research the standard uh, or as per usual.